Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There's no crystal ball here in terms of how it's going to play. Certain things about the existing system were not working, or at least were not working for a significant proportion of people in the world of global citizens. And thinking about the broad category of all these different kinds of currencies has the potential to address some of these issues. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Jeremy Elshan, the editor of MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. Today, we're talking about crypto. In our previous episode on the history of money and how we totally made it up, we explained that money in every form is always virtual. One of Bitcoin and crypto's greatest achievements so far may be helping people to see that. You know, Bitcoin is a philosopher's stone. It's also a pet rock. It's worthless and it's worth millions. It's magic and it's marketing. And it reminds us that these same contradictions are true of all money. Sometimes this can get downright absurd. The cryptocurrency that was started as a joke (laughs) to make fun of cryptocurrencies ends up being the leading cryptocurrency. (laughs) That would be the most ironic outcome. We just heard Elon Musk, one of the world's foremost crypto champions, talking about Dogecoin, a form of crypto that was invented as a joke. In May, that joke coin, which had been worth less than a cent, spiked to a high of just under 75 cents. Value itself is obviously just a social phenomenon. So all money is virtual and always has been. That's Felix Martin, author of Money, the unauthorized biography, who we heard from in our first episode about the invention of money. Crypto exists in an abstract form, and its value proposition can be, I don't know, how should I say it, sort of nebulous, which is why a lot of people, including me, have a hard time wrapping our heads around it. If you haven't listened to part one, it's worth going back to hear how we got the monetary system we have today. We talked about how money is a central tool of the state, how it relies on trust in the government and in each other, and it's correlated to a nation's power. Crypto turns that idea upside down. Crypto exists virtually. They're decentralized and global. So I think it's kind of important to understand that the system that cryptocurrency exists upon, that's a system usually called a blockchain or distributed ledger. That's Sheila Warren, an executive committee member at the World Economic Forum and deputy global head of their Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution. What that does is enable direct peer-to-peer exchange without the need for any centralized intermediary or authority. So rather than needing a bank to decide who holds what in what account and who can debit or credit something, you have a computer system that's really doing that. 
So cryptocurrency is a way of exchanging value directly with another person, entity, whatever it is, without having to go through any kind of institution or system or third party. And so that I would say is kind of the core tenet of the technology. There are a lot of different kinds of crypto. Bitcoin was the first, and it's probably the most familiar, but there's also Ethereum, Litecoin, Monero, and Doge. New crypto seems to pop up overnight like mushrooms. Their current value is over $2 trillion. Bitcoin was created with the idea that a fixed amount of it could be mined. Only 21 million coins can ever exist. It's not controlled by any government. It was built by an anonymous inventor who launched it in 2009. No one actually knows who Satoshi Nakamoto is. Built into the system is this idea that there's a finite amount of Bitcoin that is ever going to be generated, similar again to gold. That's why it's often called digital gold, which is you know a metaphor with its problems. And so I think that is unique. So many other cryptocurrencies do not have a similar cap or a similar limit. And so you have to kind of examine them differently. Even though crypto was invented in response to the 2008 financial crisis as a way to take government and the banks out of the equation, it turns out governments may have a good reason to create cryptos of their own. For one, the use of cash is rapidly declining. One form this is taking is the idea of creating central bank digital currencies, or CBDCs. You have to look at central bank digital currency, the way that the Fed decides when to print money. Similarly, they could inject, you know, using digital fiat, digital dollar, for example, digital yuan, digital yen, digital anything. You could imagine a similar approach. Now, this is not what central banks have said they intend to do with CBDCs if they're issued. So far, largely, it seems the direction of travel is kind of keeping this at what's called the wholesale CBDC level, which means it's really more a tool for banks to kind of use to make, you know, cross-border That's what they're talking about now. But Warren says no one really knows what the future holds. There's no crystal ball here in terms of how it's going to play. Now, my fervent hope is that regulators will understand that the whole reason we had these innovations is because certain things about the existing system were not working, or at least were not working for a significant proportion of people in the world of global citizens, right? So there are problems there that have to be fixed. And thinking about the broad category of all these different kinds of currencies has the potential to address some of these issues. Issues like inequity. A lot of people don't have access to traditional banks and credit because they lack a home address, government ID, a regular job, or their credit history isn't good. Crypto proponents say that with the currency's global platform and lack of gatekeepers, it's possible some of the barriers to access could be eliminated. If I can use cryptocurrency as collateral and get a loan against it, maybe I'm not able to get a loan from a traditional bank, but I can actually leverage digital holdings, digital currencies, and create that same value. So even though the mechanism of collateralization is different, it has the same real-world import in some cases, right? The same impact on my ability to go and finance a thing as if I were to go to a system that I've been cut out of or excluded from because I don't meet whatever criteria or you know, there's redlining or whatever it might be. So I think it's important to look beyond money as just a means of payment and think about what are other things that people use value or wealth for. Is it accessible to everyone? I would probably argue that if you don't have an internet connection, that's going to be a stumbling block. Aaron Lammer works at the proprietary trading firm Radical, and he's co-host of the crypto-focused podcast Cointalk. But anyone who can get on the internet, I think, could probably participate. And you do see people in parts of the world that have 
less well-developed banking systems using cryptocurrency as a place to keep their savings, say, on their phone. So what's really unappealing about using crypto to buy or sell things right now is how volatile the prices have been. It's just not practical. So one concept you hear a lot about in the crypto world today is the idea of a stablecoin. The difference between a stablecoin and a cryptocurrency is a stablecoin is pegged to an extrinsic thing. It's usually pegged to either you know, fiat money like the US dollar, or it's pegged to a basket of assets, or it's pegged to something outside of the system itself. Okay, So if you can pay for something in US dollars, then in theory, you should be able to pay for it in USDC, which is a stablecoin pegged to the US dollar. And the value there is determined by the value of the dollar. I do think we're going to see kind of a gateway drug, if you will, of stable coins that come into play that make it more palatable for people to kind of engage in transactions using cryptocurrency. All that being said, these still remain somewhat speculative. A major uncertainty right now is how regulation, which many believe is bound to happen at some point in the not very distant future, will affect the whole industry. If crypto moves into mainstream use, questions arise about what existing banking rules should apply. The idea is if you issue stablecoins, should you be regulated like a bank? And so a lot of stablecoin issuers are now exploring what does it mean to be regulated like a bank? And am I actually a bank? And if I am a bank, what does that mean? So I wouldn't assume that that's not you know, something that may happen or that aspects, I think more likely aspects of banking regulation will apply to stablecoin issuers and some aspects maybe won't because they don't make sense. Another use for crypto you'll hear a lot of people talk about is the idea of a smart contract. Rebecca Reddick is general counsel at Aave, a group of European software companies. She explains. Cryptocurrency is software, honestly. It is just software code that is written and has value based on the way you can use it. Smart contracts are self-executing computer code, which function in a conditional manner. So they are stored on a permissionless blockchain and the code is written to say, if X happens, then Y will automatically happen. So if I deposit USDC into the Aave protocol, I will earn 6% interest and things like that automatically. So when we talk about software protocols, those are numerous smart contracts that work together and ensure that transactions occur automatically and completely at the user's discretion. As we mentioned before, USDC is a form of stablecoin. Smart contracts are used to execute transactions in DeFi or decentralized finance. DeFi is essentially what allows crypto to take the bank out of banking. Basically, proponents want to engage in banking activities like lending and trading, but without being part of the traditional banking system. So DeFi or decentralized finance refers to an open and programmable financial system built out of software. This software allows users to engage in economic activities without the need to rely on intermediaries. And DeFi expands on the concept and allows you to engage in more complex financial transactions than just a transfer of value. So you can, you know, borrow crypto from certain protocols. You can swap tokens, right, like you would on an exchange or something like that. But this is very different because you're never interacting with a counterparty or another human. You're only interacting with software. There's a ton of excitement around DeFi, but there's also a lot of question marks, and particularly when it comes to regulation. 
Yeah, that's a concern for a lot of people. I mean, stable coins don't have a traditional bank license or the regulatory or supervisory oversight that comes with it. And that's a major concern for a lot of people. There are financial innovations, and we've seen them historically, where systemic risk builds up in the system. And at some point, things can go sideways. And when that happens, it's the people who use these instruments that become the victims. You know, people hear the name stablecoin, and I think it implies a certain amount of stability, right, with respect to the U.S. dollar. For a lot of people, they consider a stablecoin as good as holding U.S. dollars. But the reality is that even if stablecoin issuers say that they can absolutely guarantee conversion to U.S. dollar at any point in time, there won't be any losses, we know that these things do sometimes happen. And so there are people who say that stablecoin issuers should have a banking charter, that they should be approved by the Federal Reserve. I mean, there are a lot of people who think we need more safeguards in place in the event that something were to go wrong. Right. The system hasn't really ever been stress tested in any way. We have no idea how all of this would function in a period of upheaval or crisis. Right. And it's growing really rapidly. And, you know, it might not be too long before some of these things get so big that we're talking about too big to fail again. And, you know, in that sort of instance, the thing that some people worry about is that what you end up with is another large-scale government bailout. But according to Reddig, banks actually are pretty interested in getting into this space. There's lots of interest from traditional financial institutions and how to use it in a way that allows them to be compliant with all the rules and regs that they are required to comply with. Software developers are already facing regulation and laws, right? There are consumer protection laws that already govern anybody who puts out products or software in terms of ensuring that you have accurate information out there and things like that. So consumer protection is just something that is out there for anybody who's developing products. But as far as how financial regulation may intersect with decentralized finance, that's going to happen. But how it's going to happen is very, very different than I think how it's happening with centralized crypto. Obviously, there's a little bit of a hoop that people have to jump through in terms of learning how to use it. There's no reason not to be attracted to using it just because it's software. It allows you to have autonomy over your own wealth management and financial independence. So everyone should be attracted to using it. Will everyone be attracted to using it? Now that we've gotten a better picture of what crypto is and how it works, it's time to talk about how people might actually use it. That's coming up after the break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we heard what crypto is and how it works. We wanted to know, what are some practical applications for us day to day? And is there any chance it will someday replace our dollar? 
the reason we're not buying sandwiches and cups of coffee with crypto is because we already have a very good way to buy sandwiches and cups of coffee. Never been easier. You just you know, Apple Pay or you tap your credit card on there. And so I don't really think that's like an area people are looking to innovate that much. That's Aaron Lammer again, co-host of the podcast Coin Talk. Lammer says there are other areas where crypto has practical applications. There are a lot of people who maybe don't qualify for certain forms of lending because they're a freelancer or um, their credit history. There's a variety of reasons why you would not be qualified for a home loan, even though you might have significant assets. Our system is sort of based on more of like a reputation kind of idea of credit. So there are protocols that would let you take your existing cryptocurrency holdings, which are sort of the equivalent of your savings and your investments, and borrow money against them directly with no bank or intermediary. And that money might allow you to purchase a home or put a down payment or something like that. So that's a way that I think that cryptocurrency can sort of improve on some of these systems. Rebecca Reddick argues that for people who are unbanked or who live in a country with an unstable currency, crypto offers a useful alternative. If people in developing countries, people without access to, you know, personal identification. So there's been this long discussion about how crypto is meant to bank the unbanked. I think the barriers to entry that we see today, which is you have to have a passport or some other form of government issued ID. You need to show some sort of credit history. It excludes people from engaging in financial transactions and could exclude them forever. And this will allow, you know, those types of issues to be combated a bit. And there are also various software developers who are looking to build out a new system. So you can still do the checks that people want to combat money laundering, terrorism, things that all of those things are meant to combat, but also continue with the ability to bring people into the system. World Economic Forum Executive Committee member Sheila Warren sees the path to wider acceptance of crypto as generational. There's a different kind of willingness to engage with these kinds of ideas. We are finding that, you know, younger countries are moving a little faster. Countries that have more aging population have different problems, different priorities. Again, completely understandable. They're not really trying to bring their retiree population onto Bitcoin, right? They're trying to, like, get people health care and things that are really critically, you know. So I understand all of that. And it's very logical to me, like, the way things are playing out a little bit when you look at policy priorities. That being said, this is something that you ignore as a policymaker at your own peril. Aaron Lammer agrees that for a younger generation, using digital currency might feel more natural than the traditional banking system. The people who are in college now, you know, this may seem like a more natural way to do things than the banking system, which honestly seems like pretty bizarre and arcane to me. Like when you send someone a wire transfer and it takes hours and days to show up and you have to call your bank to make it go through. That's strange for someone who's used to using a smartphone and used to these sort of instant type interactions. The way that we bank by like going into a banking branch and taking money out of ATMs, that may be the thing that goes by the wayside. And as this new currency goes mainstream, expect the most traditional of institutions to get involved, banks. I think that that's a very possible outcome, that cryptocurrency services become another offering from banks. 
And as with any like competitive environment, what I would expect is that some banks will fight it tooth and nail and will never go there. But some of the maybe youth-oriented <laughs> banks will see this as an opportunity. And yeah, there's no reason why you can't have your checking account, your savings account, your Bitcoin account, your Ethereum account all in one place. I mean, you already see not so much banks, but more in the like fidelity kind of space starting to add in cryptocurrencies. And I would expect that anyone who is looking to attract young clients, you certainly see apps like Robinhood generating a lot of business in this way. As Rebecca Reddick sees it, we're moving into a third phase of our internet evolution. And that evolution will allow people to understand and interact with crypto in a way they haven't before. So web one was read only, right? You can go onto the internet, you can just read information, and it was a quicker, faster way to get something like the New York Times rather than you know waiting for it to come to your house. Web two was read and write. So you have things like Facebook and Twitter, where you not only read it, but you can create content yourself. The content, however, is owned by the platforms you put it on. And you have to give them your data and your information in order to be able to interact with those platforms. The way to think about Web3, it is read, write, and own, so that anything you create, anything you do on any of these new types of platforms, you own it. So if you are going to engage with a decentralized social media protocol, you'll own all the content and the data you put on there. If you are engaging in a transaction in decentralized finance, you have control over your money. No one ever takes it from you. It's such a paradigm shift from the traditional financial world. This is out of my lane of expertise, but I think it feels to me like underneath or behind all of the talk about decentralization is like a vision of an internet that's built on top of private tollways. People say you own it, but you know, in a lot of cases to access the ownership, you have to actually pay something and it's controlled by someone else. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. You think about how much privacy we've all had to give up to use the technology. We have like our phones, which track our location and you know everything we think about and look up. It's nice to think there could be this utopian world where we can move anonymously and own all our private data. But I think getting there is going to be, like you said, much trickier than it seems. So much of the home mortgage market is dependent on government guarantees. And what lender wants to take, in a sense, the risk of lending with a crypto valuation that could fall by half overnight? It's a pretty risky thing. Wall Street is already interested in this stuff. As soon as you start to see a certain degree of success and proliferation, the traditional banks take notice. And people call it disrupting traditional banking or whatever, but it really isn't what happens. These things get big enough that they then create partnerships with the banks, right? So you see the big financial actors coming in and in a sense usurping what started off as a non-traditional DeFi, and it starts to become part of the traditional banking system. The whole notion of DeFi is still really being thought through. Of course, the volatility, the lack of regulation, the lack of government backing, and even the mechanics of some forms of crypto mean there is a lot of risk involved. Here's Aaron Lammer again. One risk is the risk of the price of these currencies, which are volatile. And it's benefited a lot of people in the long run, but 
kind of depends when you bought and when you wanted to sell. And so there's a huge risk there. There's also technological risks. If there's a glitch on your bank and it misrepresents how much money you have, you can appeal to someone and hopefully get that remedied. Crypto, there is no customer service to appeal to. If you lose your passwords or experience some sort of a technical failure, it's kind of too bad. Crypto is still a bit like the Wild West, or like money during the Civil War, as we spoke about in part one. At that time, there were all kinds of currencies issued by local banks across the country, and their values fluctuated depending on what part of the country you were in. Philip Deal, the former director of the U.S. Mint, who we talked to in part one, says with new cryptos cropping up every day, the world of digital currencies looks a bit like where the country first started. I think what we're seeing is with cryptocurrency is sort of a step back in order to step forward. So this isn't an inherent criticism. But I think it's a step back toward this Tower of Babel aspect. And we are likely to continue to be in that state in which there's a lot of confusion and uncertainty in that market until the government is forced to step in. Deal believes that in order for crypto to become a stable system, eventually there will have to be some kind of government regulation. There will either be a series of huge problems that develop where people are scammed and people lose lots of money through speculation on these. And then there will be a public outcry that forces the government to step up and rationalize this new emerging system. What that rationalized system looks like, I don't know. I'd soon be wealthy (laughs) if I could guess what that is going to be. But there's some form of intervention by the government is going to be necessary in order to deal with that. But it won't come until there's sort of a public outcry for it. The biggest challenge, Deal says, is the one facing any currency, trust. One of the things that's crucial for cryptocurrency is to develop a reputation of reliability and trustworthiness. And legitimacy, really, is what we're talking about. Cryptocurrencies are working so hard to get lots of businesses to accept it as typical business transactions, because that's the stamp of legitimacy. But the demand for cryptocurrency is a speculative demand. People buy it for speculative purposes. But that's not what uh, the role of currency is. Other money experts wonder if it's even right to call some forms of crypto, Bitcoin, for example, a currency. Harvard Law professor Christine Dazan is one. I think it's actually a masterpiece of branding (laughs) to call them cryptocurrencies. So monies, as I've seen them elsewhere, act as a unit of account. That is to say, they have a value independent of other currencies. How do you tell if an asset has a value independent of other currencies, right? The Bitcoin, people could say, well, maybe Bitcoin is setting the value for the dollar. I think you can look at what that asset or, quote, currency is producing in the world. That is to say, you look at which currency is producing the world of goods, products, labor, services, and that world right now is produced by the dollar and by other sovereign currencies. 
Bitcoin's not producing that world. It's restating that world, right? It's expressing that world in a value that it holds as a digital asset. The bottom line in all of this is it's way too early to tell where crypto is headed. We're just now seeing regulators really look at this more seriously. Where I think crypto has already won is that it's made us all think much more critically about the nature of money itself and all the parts of our financial system we just take for granted. There are likely uses for all of this we still don't even understand. You know, with any new technology, when it first comes out, a lot of people are going to have the reaction, why would I ever possibly need this? We're still in the stage where there's so much potential and obviously so much money has come into the space, but it's way too early to know where this all ends up. Thanks for listening to the best new ideas in money. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. If you like what you heard and you'd like more people to know about the show, please write us a review. It's the single biggest thing you can do to help others discover the show. Thanks to Rebecca Reddick, Sheila Warren, Philip Deal, Aaron Lammer, Felix Martin, and Christine Design. To learn more about crypto, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelp. And I'm Jeremy Olshan. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch, produced by Best Case Studios. Devin Maverick-Robbins and Suzanne Myers are our producers, and our associate producer is Hannah Leibowitz-Lockard. Our researcher is Alana Myers. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. For MarketWatch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer, and the associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. This episode was mixed by Melissa Pons. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.